1985, a terrifying string of attacks in Austin, Texas, erupted through the city, preying on the servant class. An unknown attacker, or band of attackers, broke into the residences of servants across the city, striking many of them in the head with an axe. The attacks carried on for months, with the police making little advancement, until the night of Christmas Eve saw two of the city's gentry struck down, forcing the authorities to act. Cue a flock of nose-blind bloodhounds, a trio of fake Pinkertons, and a mare with far too much on its plate. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 5, Episode 9. I'm Ben, and I hope this episode finds you well. I've got some fun news coming up about the monthly patron prize draw, but I'll come on to that in the second half of the podcast because I think this episode's going to be a bit of a long one. So let's just jump straight into it and I'll speak more about that news in the second half of the podcast. So yeah, let's do this episode. Let's get into it. This is The Midnight Assassin. In 1885, Austin, Texas, was a city on the up. Half a century earlier, it had been nothing more than a small frontier settlement on the banks of the Colorado River named Waterloo. But in 1838, when the capital of Texas was moved from Houston, the town was transformed both in name and scope. Waterloo became Austin, named in honour of Stephen F. Austin, the father of Texas and the man who had brought the first group of families to the region in 1825. Enchanted by the offer of 1,200 acres per family at 12.5 cents per acre, and bolstered by the safety of the order that they were to kill the indigenous Karankawa people on site, who Austin demonised heavily in propaganda as violent cannibals. Prior to the relocating of the capital, the town's population fluctuated heavily, at times consisting of as few as 20 residents living in a smattering of houses running along the banks of the river and lining a wide main strip of dirt road. The roads of the town were muddy, travel was difficult and supplies limited. Paired with the low productivity in the settlement due to the lack of sawmills, most houses were simple single-storey log buildings, insulated with hay and moss. In the evenings, the earliest settlers would sleep under umbrellas, shivering in the bitter cold as cattle snacked hungrily on the walls of their houses. In time, things improved, little by little, until after the relocation of the capital, largely chosen for its surrounding natural beauty and to encourage westward expansion, when Austin jumped up and became a town in a hurry. By 1840, the population had boomed to 800, as carpenters, blacksmiths and labourers stimulated the industry and economy vastly improving conditions in the town. Plans were drawn up, and a sprawling square crisscross of roads forming a grid that stretched from the banks of the river to the capitol building in the north was sketched out with lots promptly auctioned. Not everyone agreed on the relocation, and over the next years, attempts were made to bring the capital back to Houston, but all ended in failure. Saloons were erected, gambling dens and brothels established and a single sawmill was built as grand houses popped up on the lots, styled in the Roman, Greek and Italian revival trends that were popular throughout the American South. Following the Civil War, 
The city continued to grow exponentially as the state lunatic asylum was built, along with schools, hotels and colleges. Newspapers were founded and the pressmen installed themselves quickly in smoky rooms where they drank whiskey and gambled in order to kill time between writing copy. In 1871, the railroad arrived, bringing further expansion. Things in Austin were firmly on the up and up, until the crash of the cotton prices saw a temporary trip in the booming economy, though it was quickly restored and went on to prosper, doubling in price almost as quickly as it had bust. By the 1880s, it was a town unrecognisable from its roots, with a population of over 20,000 residents. The streets were lined with gas lamps, shoeshine boys, tarot readers and horse-drawn carriages. Department stores sold mechanical toys and the finest hosiery, whilst a gas-powered refrigerator kept cabinets at freezing temperatures in the town's ice cream parlour. There was even a roller coaster for the most adventurous citizens to get their jollies. In 1880, the State University was built, and a year later, the plans were drawn up for a brand new state capitol building, surrounded by 22 acres of grounds that would rival any other in America, standing taller even than the capitol building in Washington, D.C., all at the cost of $3.7 million. As it happened, it turned out to be a fortunate set of plans, as the outgoing building was burnt down shortly after leading to a temporary building being erected until the works were completed. By 1884, Austin was a town full of opportunity and positivity. As the year drew to a close, however, the winter grew increasingly cold. The bitter winds whipped through dimly lit streets. For the first time in over 20 years, wolves were seen venturing into the outskirts of Texas cities, driven by a search for food that had become more desperate as the frost caused the ground to freeze over. As the years on the calendar turned, the mercury in the thermometers nailed onto walls across the state read a little over freezing throughout much of the day, whilst the thick grey sky shed its weight across Texas as rain and hail beat down for four days straight. As people made plans for New Year's, a new threat to Austin's persistent optimism arose when the murder of a servant struck a new fear into the population that would grind away for several years. December the 30th was yet another bitterly cold evening. That day had seen temperatures peak at 13 below freezing as roads throughout Texas blocked and creeks continued to be frozen solid. Tom Chalmers had arrived in Austin a week before the new year. He and his wife were visiting his brother-in-law William Hall and his wife at 901 West Pecan Street for the festive period. Though that day the Halls had popped out for the night to visit friends on the outside of town. That night, the Chalmers retired to bed early as Mrs. Chalmers was nursing a cold. In the midnight darkness, Austin lay quiet that night, the sound of the biting wind whipping down the street whistling in the air, singing people to sleep. Chalmers, however, lay awake, straining his ears. He had woken moments earlier with the sound of what he thought was someone knocking on the front door, followed by a scuffling, thumping sound coming from the front of the house and he was quite sure that, at 3am, it was not likely to be the return of his sister and her husband. Besides, why would they have knocked, even if they had decided to return in the middle of the night? A former Texas ranger, Chambers wasn't going to let anyone rob his brother's house on his watch, so 
Sitting up in bed, he reached for a box of matches and slipped out from the sheets quietly to look through the half-open door down the hallway. Striking a match, he saw a large black man dressed in a nightshirt stumbling around in the gloom. Looking up towards the light of the match, the man spoke out. Mr. Tom, Mr. Tom, for God's sakes, do something to help me. Somebody has nearly killed me. On the one hand, there was relief for Chalmers. The man was Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of his brother's cook, Molly Smith, who lived in a small wooden shack on the grounds to the rear of the house. On the other hand, however, he now had to get rid of Spencer before the wound in his head that was leaking blood onto the floor made any more of a mess. Spencer asked for Chalmers' help with the wound and muttered something incomprehensible about Molly, but Chalmers wasn't really interested, seeing Spencer to the front door. He recommended Chalmers get his head bandaged up and after he closed the door, gave the floor a quick clean to ensure that his family would not find any nasty surprises upon their return. And then, he slumped back to bed. Walter Spencer stood barefoot in the garden, staring up and down the street. Chalmers had been no help at all, so taking a sharp intake of breath to ease the pain, he stepped forwards towards Doc's diners, two doors down from the halls, in the hopes that he might help him get his wound cleaned up. The next morning, as the sun rose to another hazy, cold morning, Dr. Steiner was woken for the second time. A servant from a neighbouring house was screaming in the yard, yelling for someone to come at once. Opening the door, he woke sharply as both the cold air hit him just before he saw the panic-stricken look of the screaming man. Gathering something about an injured woman, the doctor followed the servant into the backyard of the hall residence, where he at once saw precisely what had gripped the man so. Lying on the ground, in a heap, lay the body of Molly Smith, his neighbour's cook, and the girlfriend of Walter Spencer, the man whose head he had bandaged earlier that morning. Seeing at once that there was little he could do in terms of medical attention, he made his way over to the store, picked up the telephone, and made a call to the police department. The day clerk answered in a sleepy tone, and Steiner told him that he was with a woman lying near Rainey's store in West Austin, and requested the presence of an officer. William Howe was a young officer in his mid-twenties. Back at the police headquarters, the clerk had grabbed him and told him about the doctor's call. He stepped out to the stables, grabbed a horse, and made his way over to the site of Rainey's store, about a half mile away. When he arrived, he met with Tom Chalmers and Dr. Steiner standing in the road outside the hall residence. Dismounting his horse, he asked the man what was going on and was filled in by Chalmers of the events from earlier that morning. Spencer had been badly wounded, chipped in the doctor. He had bandaged him up and sent him on his way around 4am. At the time, both men had heard him mention something about his girlfriend Molly, but neither had the desire to follow him up on the panic words. As they stepped into the garden, Officer Howe was set aback. He was not used to dealing with murder cases, and the sight of Molly laying on her back, her head suffering from a gaping wound and drenched in blood, was more than he would have been pleased to deal with on a Wednesday morning. Stepping past the body, he peered into the servant's shack. Inside was a mess. Furniture was upended and a mirror lay broken, shattered across the ground. The bedsheets were covered in blood and by the foot of the bed, an axe lay stained with blood. As he turned to leave, he saw a bloody handprint by the door smeared down the wall. From the front door, all the way to the body of Molly, 50 yards away, a blood trail carved across the ground in a macabre smudge. 
Molly Smith had been born in Virginia in 1857 and had worked her way down to Texas sometime in the 1870s, working as a domestic servant. She had a 10-year-old son named George, but the pair had become separated sometime before her arrival in Austin. In the months prior to her murder, she had taken up with Walter Spencer, a local labourer, and the pair had begun to live together in the shack in the rear garden, just off the kitchen of the hall residence, where she worked as a cook. How was at a loss what to do. Relatively inexperienced in such matters, he called back to headquarters and requested backup, this time telling them that the woman was very much dead, apparently murdered, to ensure that the right people be sent. The right man in 1884 was 44-year-old Sergeant John Cheneville. Cheneville was another former Texas Ranger, a large man with an even larger reputation. He was known in Austin as Ronnie O'Johnny, and aside from at the police headquarters, he could be seen every Saturday morning at the city market, where he held the position of auctioneer on account of his booming voice. He was a throwback to the frontier days, riding the streets of Austin morning and night, and paying off lesser criminals in order to get them on site as informants. He showed up to the hall residence in quick time, trailed by a dozen bloodhounds. He took one cursory look over the scene, let the dogs off their leashes and watched as they failed to follow any semblance of a trail. This was, unfortunately, the extent of his detective work. More used to breaking up brawls in saloons and mopping up after a drunken shooting, the murder of a black servant with no immediate witnesses was not really in his wheelhouse. Shortly after Cheneville's arrival, the press hit the scene. In 1884, There were several daily and weekly newspapers published in Austin, the largest being the Austin Daily Statesman. The murder of Molly was an ugly scene and the story was too good to pass up, even if it was a little hard to take down the details for the less than seasoned reporters. The story appeared in the press on the 1st of January 1885, opposite an advert for a toy shop selling baseball bats for 25 cents and a mechanical walking monkey for 65 cents. The headline struck out of the page in bold black ink. Bloody work. A coloured woman killed outright and her lover almost done for. At a late hour, Tuesday night, there occurred one of the most horrible murders that ever a reporter was called on to chronicle. A deed almost unparalleled in its atrocity of its execution. Almost right from the off, the police had been at a dead end. The story had emphasised the fact that Cheneville's dogs had not helped to shed any light upon the murder, much to the embarrassment of the sergeant, and the police concluded with an air of mystery, stating that it had been as foul a deed as was ever done in Austin. In his interview with the paper, Walter Spencer had told the reporters that he had no clue who might have carried out the murder, but unintentionally played up the mystery aspect by stating that it could have been anyone, due to the open door that connected through the kitchen. Naturally, as her boyfriend and the only person with a link to the dead woman, Spencer was himself the police's best suspect. The problem was that outside of an arrest for disturbing the peace in 1881, Spencer had a clean record and was known as a good worker with a peaceful relationship. The part-time nurse, Nancy Anderson, who worked in the hall residence, told the police that he and Molly had enjoyed a relaxed relationship and though Molly was thought to have had a temper at times, once threatening to kill a man with a bottle, she and Spencer were apparently on the best of terms. There was, of course, also the small detail that Spencer had been attacked himself and had a large wound on his head to prove it. 
With Spencer looking increasingly less likely as a suspect, the police branched out and began hearing details about a man named William Brooks. Brooks had been an ex-boyfriend of Molly's from Waco, a hundred miles to the north of Austin. After Molly had moved to Austin, Brooks had followed her, but by the time of his arrival, Molly had taken up with Spencer. There were rumours floating around that Spencer and Brooks had recently had something of an argument, and so the police sought him out, finding him asleep in the servant shack of Rosa Brown, his current girlfriend. Unfortunately for the police, the line stopped there, as Brooks had an alibi. At the time of the attack, he'd been working two miles away at a dance hall, a fact attested to by three witnesses, who all claimed that he was there from the start of the dance to the end, between 3 and 4 a.m. Even more unfortunate than the police, however, was Brooks himself, as the police arrested him on suspicion of murder anyway. When Molly's body arrived that day in the city mortuary, Dr. William Burt prepared himself for the autopsy. However, upon seeing the butchered remains, he recovered the body after taking only a few notes and called it a day. That night, despite the cold weather, the citizens of Austin enjoyed the frivolities of the New Year celebrations. The saloons heaved, and the streets came alive with the sound of fireworks and cheers, seeing in the new year, at the Brunswick, a phantom party was held, the attendees all dressed as ghosts. The final day of 1884 had been a busy one for the police, and they would have been hoping for a calmer, more peaceful 1885. Sadly, it was not to be. New Year's Day was quiet in the Austin streets, on account of the weather. The morning had started out grey and snow had begun falling at noon. That day, the inquest into the murder of Molly Smith was held in private with Justice von Hosenberg overseeing and withholding the details from the press on account of it being a private affair, much to the distaste of the reporters, who retaliated by writing that even though the details had been withheld from the public, they were still just as knowledgeable as the police, who were failing about with no leads. Molly's body was buried in an unmarked grave in a large grass field in the west of the city, in an area known as the Coloured Grounds, a cemetery exclusively for the black population. With no new evidence materialising on Brooks, he was eventually released at the end of January and it seemed like very little was ever to be known concerning the murder. For the police, the matter perhaps was best left to be forgotten and for a few months it was. By March of 1885, the weather had finally begun to warm up. Spring was upon Austin, and the mood was high after the cornerstone of the new Capitol building, wherein £16,000 had been laid following a grand possession through the streets, the likes of which, the papers said, were never equalled. It was, however, the start of a month that would be rather tumultuous for the servant classes of the city. Disturbances began when a young German servant girl had woken in the middle of the night to a man standing at the foot of her bed. When she stirred, she heard the voice of a man say, your money or your life. Screaming at the realisation of the situation, she was hit hard on the head by the intruder, who afterwards fled when the owner of the main house came dashing out to the servant's quarters to see what was afoot. Four days later, the cook in another home was woken by a violent shaking at the door as someone attempted to enter the servant shack that she lived in near downtown Austin, and a similar story came out the same day when two servants were woken by an intruder who grabbed one of them, letting go when the other screamed, alerting the homeowner once more. The girls spent the rest of the night locked in the kitchen, but when they returned to the shack in the morning, they found a lamp burning 
that they had been sure was shut off at the time of their leaving and all of their clothing was lying in a heap in the middle of the floor. On the 17th of March, one of the servants at the home of Abe Williams, a well-known fine suits and dressmaker, was abruptly awoken when an intruder ripped off her duvet and hit her in the head several times before fleeing into the night. It was a bizarre series of attacks that culminated on the 19th of March when two Swedish servants, Christine and Clara, who worked in the employ of Colonel J.H. Pope at his home on the corner of College Avenue. The girl's small servant quarters was attached to the kitchen of the main house by a flight of steps, with both of their bedrooms detached from the main house itself. At 1am, they heard a faint knocking at the front door and rousing themselves from bed, were shocked by a pistol shot that was fired through the window, leading the girls to scream and run out towards the house. As Clara approached the dining room door, about to grab the handle, she was seized from behind by the attacker, who only let go after the girls' repeated screams aroused the attention of the main house's occupants. By the time they stood in the garden to see what on earth was happening, the attacker had once more fled, disappearing into the black night. After the girls returned to their room, they barricaded themselves in and were about to attempt to get back to sleep when a second shot came through the window, this time striking Christine in the shoulder. Dr. Swearingham was called and the wound dressed, with the physician suggesting a small bullet had caused the injury akin to a cheap 32 caliber seven-shooter. It had been a strange string of attacks that the press called the diabolical doings of what appears to be a regular band of organised ruffians. They suggested that very few in Austin would be against an extrajudicial lynching, lamenting on the days of old, when eight years prior, bands of vigilantes had cleansed the streets of Austin so thoroughly that it became a superfluous act to lock the doors of one's house. A few funerals would doubtless have a happy effect if the next man who came uninvited and during the small hours to disturb a servant girl could be treated to a dose of buckshot that would permanently unfit him for many more visits. It would be a proper theme for universal joy. The tone of the piece was barely concealed. In 1885, Black servants and labourers made up 20% of the population in Austin and segregation was in full effect. Freedom after the Civil War and the following abolition had improved the lives of many, but it was still a different kind of freedom from that which the white folk enjoyed. There were dedicated shopping hours for blacks and many saloons, theatres and dance halls continued to disallow entry completely. In 1885, three schools for the black community had opened in Austin but access to education had been slow and for many people of colour, the concept of social advancement was laughable at best. Instead, the black communities were blamed for all manner of crimes, heavily discriminated against and often beaten in interrogations and even bog-standard arrests. Despite the fact that the witnesses in the attack so far were never clear on their description of their assailant, with white, yellow and black all mentioned as a possible skin colour, along with the possibility that the attacker may have painted his face in order to disguise himself, the narrative in the press and the word on the streets looked first and foremost to rest the blame solely on the black population. In response to the elevation in attacks, the police requested new officers. At the time, they had a staff of only 12 for a city with a population that had been growing exponentially and was, by now, severely understaffed. The mayor... John W. Robertson was less keen on this idea, 
police cost money after all. Instead, he allowed the creation of special policemen, ordinary citizens who were paid $2 per night to patrol the white neighbourhoods. By the end of the day, a dozen had been drafted in. Unlikely as it was that the presence of the special policeman was having any effect, especially due to the fact that most slacked off, whiling away their shifts in the saloons, the attacks did seem to quiet down throughout the end of March and April. It was over a month until stories of the next attacks began surfacing, when, on the night of the 29th, two attacks were carried out in two separate homes, both consisting of servant girls being grabbed, but the attacker fleeing after screams alerted people to what was going on. During the second attack of the evening, a man had grabbed the servant with a razor in one hand and threatened to kill her as she screamed. The girl screamed all the same, and when two other servants came to her aid, they later told the police that they had seen a man running away, clothed in a woman's dress, apparently taken from a washing line in the yard. His strange appearance caused them to cry out, and the noise awoke Mr Orlando Caldwell, who lived in the adjoining house. He snatched up a pistol, and running out into the yard, saw a negro man trying to divest himself of a woman's dress, and was actually cutting off the sleeves with the same instrument that he threatened to use on the woman. Mr Caldwell took deliberate aim, but his pistol missed fire. He had forgotten to load it. The rascal then leapt over a fence into an alley and disappeared. The next day, the attacks continued, this time evolving slightly, with the attacker reported to have thrown stones at the servant's shacks. In all the attacks, the attacker was promptly seen off after the woman's screams alerted those nearby. The police, it seemed, had had enough, and over the first few days of May, they arrested five different men from the black community, Andrew Jackson, Newt Harper, Henry Wallace, Jack Ross, and a man known in Austin as Old John, who had recently been released from the asylum following a stint for claiming that it was worth $260 million in gold that he had secretly buried on the banks of the Colorado River. Eliza Shelley was a 31-year-old servant and cook, working in the house of Dr. Lucian Johnson. The mother of three boys, her husband, Ike, was serving time in the Texas State Penitentiary for stealing a horse. On the morning of 7th of May, Dr. Johnson got up early, leaving the house at 6am to go shopping in the local market. As he arrived home, he noticed a commotion in the rear yard by the fence that separated the main house from the servant's shack that sat behind. 50 yards from the main house, backing onto an alley that bordered the doctor's grounds. Curious, he walked around the house to be confronted by his wife and pale, shock-looking teenage niece. I think Eliza's been murdered, she told him. Shortly after he had left to go to market that morning, his wife had noticed the young servant's children crying and had sent her niece to see what the problem might be. Upon entering the shack, the young girl walked straight into a scene of nightmares. Eliza's trunks had been smashed open on the floor of the small, one-roomed structure. Her clothes pulled out across the floor. Eliza had been wrapped in the bed linen that sat crumpled and drenched in blood, her head almost split in two. Running out to the back alley, Dr Johnson discovered barefoot tracks in the soft sand, entering and leaving the perimeter of his land. The doctor returned home to contact the police, and soon after, Sergeant Cheneville rode up to the shack in the yard, his pack of bloodhounds in tow. Taking a closer look at the murder scene, it appeared to him as though the body had been carefully wrapped in the bed linen after the attack. 
Eliza had a huge crack in her forehead, as wide as it was deep, along with a small hole between her eyes that looked as though caused by a screwdriver or thin metal rod. All across her body were knife wounds that cut deep into the tissue, exposing her organs. The children were questioned, who told the police that a man had entered the house the night before and asked them where their mother had kept their money. After replying that they did not think that she had any money, he told them to put their heads under the pillow and stay quiet. This apparently they did, and they said they fell back to sleep, completely unaware of the fate of their mother, until they woke up that morning. The man, they said, wore a white rag over his face with holes cut for eyes, and though they weren't sure of his skin colour, thought that he was probably white. The doctor said he could not think of any motive for the murder other than robbery, as Eliza had always been polite and was sure that she had no enemies. The problem with the robbery motive, of course, was that she, like most other servants who lived hand to mouth, clearly had no money to speak of. Shannonville released his hounds to absolutely no effect whatsoever. That morning, an inquest was held, coming to the conclusion that Eliza had been murdered by a person or persons unknown and that no weapon had been found at the scene. It was thought that the wounds were once again created by some kind of hatchet or axe, though some members of the jury suggested a blunter instrument. Later that day, the deputy sheriff, John Holmes, arrested a 19-year-old named Andrew Williams, described in the press as a half-witted coloured boy. His arrest was based purely on the fact that he'd been walking barefoot. He was taken to the station for questioning, but soon released on account that the police had absolutely no reason to suspect him of anything whatsoever, leaving the police once again at a complete loss for leads. The press, meanwhile, were full of ideas. Head of the suggestions was that of a gang of black men who were christened the Servant Girl Annihilators. Apparently, the conspiratorial theory went that this gang were trying to recruit servant girls to their black labour union, currently demanding higher wages. The attacks were against all of those that refused to sign up. Less conspiratorial, but equally outrageous at the time, was the suggestion in the press that the attacks were being carried out by a single man, most likely a lunatic. The idea of a serial killer was still fairly alien in America in 1885. There had certainly been serial killers in the decades previous, but the notion was not widespread and popular fiction was yet to capitalise on the concept. Far easier for most was to place the blame upon the lower classes. Gangs were easy to grasp, criminal outlaws and the black community were an easy target. It wasn't too long before the police came upon their first real lead. Four days later, on the 10th of May, a man named Andrew Rogers called into the police headquarters with the bombshell that he believed he knew who the murderer was. In the weeks before the attack, Rogers said that he had seen Eliza arguing with an ex-lover named Ike Plummer, a local with a minor record following several arrests for vagrancy. Throughout his questioning, Plummer denied any wrongdoing and police were forced to release him after they found that, once again, his footprints failed to match those taken from the rear of Eliza's shack and no one else came forward to corroborate the story of the argument put forward by Rogers. In fact, most people were fairly adamant that Eliza had never caused any trouble in her life. She was a quiet, industrious woman, devoted to her husband, and it was said that she never even received company in her room out back of the doctor's yard. By now, it was apparent that the attacks came in waves, with flourishes of nightly events subsisting for a period 
before things would fall silent again for a time of short peace. By the 22nd of May, attacks had once more been dragging for much of the month. That night, there were several attacks, the first two being foiled as homeowners or police interrupted the attacker in the process of his intrusion. The second attempted attack on the 22nd actually ended with the policeman firing upon the attacker as he fled into the night, though it became clear that he missed after he carried out a further attack that night on the servant Irene Cross. Irene Cross was born in Mississippi in 1847, but had wound up in Austin in 1870, where she lived with her husband and son, Washington, though shortly after their move, her husband died, leaving her a poor widow. She continued to live in Austin with both her son and nephew, Douglas Brown. On the night of the 22nd, Washington was not at home. Irene and Douglas lay asleep in their rooms in the backyard of the Whitman family when they were woken by a man stepping through the house's rooms. When he noticed Douglas awake, he whispered to him to keep quiet as he meant him no harm and then he quietly passed into Irene's room. Irene woke with a start and began screaming and moments later the intruder dashed out of the house disappearing into the night. Irene staggered through the house slumping out into the yard bleeding profusely from a wound in her head, where she met with Robery Wayerman, a shoemaker who had heard the screams and had entered the yard to help. He picked Irene up and carried her into his own house and called the police. Quickly, Officer Brown responded, arriving shortly after with a press man in tow. Finding Irene laying on a bed in the spare room, she was bleeding and groaning, her arm almost severed from her body, and she had a large gash across her head. The reporter bent down to ask her who had carried out the attack, but got no sense from the poor woman, who could only groan in reply. Once more, Chenneville arrived and released his dogs, to no avail whatsoever. Whilst the police and reporter questioned Douglas, who gave a detailed description of the man. A big chunky negro man, barefooted and with his trousers rolled up. Apparently he wore a brown hat and ragged coat and carried a pocket knife in one hand. Not everyone was readily buying the description, however, and questioned exactly how much of the boy's statement had been true and how much was coerced from him, either by the reporter or the police. In the days following the attack, things finally fell back to peace and quiet, and the town's authorities got back to the important jobs, such as planning the semi-centennial celebration of Texas independence. The police, meanwhile, were floundering once more, with no leads, as the attack turned to a third murder after Irene passed away from her wounds in the early hours of the 25th. They reassured the press that they were following several leads, but even if they were, nothing came to any fruition. A single arrest was made on the 6th of June when police picked up a man named Oliver Townsend whilst he was in the Black Elephant Saloon. Oliver was an infamous chicken thief in Austin and the only evidence that police had to pull him in was the thought that if anyone could keep slipping away from the police after each attack, it would be Oliver. After a fairly severe interrogation, where Oliver maintained he had no connection to the attacks at all, police reluctantly let him go. Spring turned to summer and the police had still made few arrests concerning the servant girl attacks and none of any merit. By now, many servants across Austin had taken to barricade themselves in their quarters overnight, whilst more than a few others took to sleeping in the kitchens of their employer's house, moving out of their quarters entirely. Rebecca Ramey was one such servant. 
She lived with her 11-year-old daughter, Mary, in the home of Valentine Weed, pitching up on a pallet in the corner of the kitchen. The Ramey family were relatively well-known in Austin. Mary's uncle, Edward Carrington, had opened one of the first African-American-owned businesses in the city when he started a grocery store on East Pecan Street. By 1885, he had moved his business a few blocks north and Rebecca and Mary had moved into the servants' quarters of the Weeds after Rebecca took a position as a domestic servant for the family. On the morning of August 30th, Valentine entered the kitchen to find Rebecca lying unconscious on the ground, her skull fractured and her daughter Mary missing. On the ground, a buckskin club lay in a pool of blood. Weed collected his shotgun and rushed over to his neighbour's house to ask for his assistance in looking for Mary, though the pair had not far to go. Upon returning to the yard, Mary was quickly found, suffering severe head wounds and lying unconscious in the outhouse. Weed asked his neighbour to stand guard whilst he fetched a doctor and the police, and the entire pack returned shortly after. However, by the time of their arrival, it was clear to the doctor that there was little he could do for the young girl. Inspecting her head, he found the attacker had jabbed a thin rod into each of her ears, which now dripped with blood. Cheneville arrived shortly after and released his hounds once more, only this time they did appear to pick up on a scent trail. The police followed the dogs excitedly, running behind them for two blocks, until they came upon a stable where a man named Tom Allen lay asleep. He was arrested under the suspicion of murder, and Mary's body was removed to the city mortuary, whilst Rebecca was taken to hospital. Back at the scene, police discovered a series of footprints running past the yard, and when they checked them against Allen's, they found a match, though this wasn't so unusual, given the fact that he lived nearby, and would have passed the yard regularly anyhow. Disappointingly for the investigation, they once more found no other evidence connecting him with the attack, the distinct lack of blood anywhere upon his clothing or person being somewhat of a dampener for the arrest. A second arrest was made when Cheneville brought in Alec Mack, a man with a record for thievery around Austin, after the sergeant had found him walking through the streets with asafoetida on his feet, a spiced gum taken from fennel that had been used by many in the black community to throw Cheneville's dogs off their scent after they had grown tired of his enthusiastic rounding up of those that he thought were deserving of an interrogation. In town, the talk was once again turned into vigilante committees, with the idea of authorised mob justice floated at several meetings. With the mayoral elections steadily approaching, and knowing that he had to do something to stem the flow of attacks, Mayor Robertson contacted the Noble Detection Agency in Houston, asking them to assist the town's police in catching the elusive attacker. On the 9th of September, Captain Mike Hennessy, a former New Orleans police captain, steps off the train in Austin along with his two assistants, George Hanna and Ike Himmel, and their own bloodhound. The entire entourage was to cost the city $10 per day for their service, plus expenses. Over the following weeks, the trio spent much of their days and nights dressed up in wigs and fake moustaches, questioning the residents of saloons and telling the press that not to fear, progress was being made behind the scenes. On the 26th of September, Captain Hennessy returned to Houston for the weekend on a personal matter, which would turn out to be a fairly catastrophic move on his part. The following night, Saturday the 27th, a man appeared at the door of a pair of servants, he told them that he would kill them if they opened their mouths. 
apparently not too fussed by the threat, they immediately screamed and the man ran off. On Sunday, another cook saw a man staring in at her window and once again began to scream, leading to his rapid disappearance. An hour later, in the rear yard of W.B. Dunham, a newspaper publisher, a disturbance erupted. Dunham rented the shack to a man named Orange Washington, who lived there with his mistress, Gracie Vance. That night, Gracie had her friends to visit, Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson. Dunham shouted to his tenants to keep quiet, but when they failed to simmer down, he grabbed his gun and stepped out into the yard, immediately walking into the path of Lucinda Body as she staggered out of the small shack. Mr. Dunham, she called out, we are all dead. Dunham fetched his neighbour, who joined him in the yard with a gas lantern and the pair entered the shack, guns pointed forwards. On the ground, they found the body of Orange laying face down in a pool of blood, next to Patsy, who was alive but herself severely wounded. The pair returned to the house and called in the police, and Chenevier arrived soon after, along with Officer James Connor, and the pair discovered a trail of blood leading from the shack over the back fence into the yard of neighbour Hannah Hotchkiss. Fifty yards over the fence lay Gracie Vance, her face horrifically crushed, lying on the ground next to a brick covered in blood. Hannah told the police that she'd seen a man running off into the darkness and pointed in a direction off of her yard. The police took out their guns and fired in the direction that she pointed, completely in vain. They questioned everyone in the area, finding no one who had seen anything and found an axe lying in the shack, the blunt rear covered in blood and matted hair. Upon further inspection of Gracie's body, they also found a silver watch attached to a chain wrapped around her wrist, an item that they were quite sure did not belong to the woman. Upon his return, Captain Hennessy was quick to call a press conference. He may have been absent for the latest murder, but it mattered little, he assured them, for he had been in deep contact with several men over the past weeks and one had now given a signed statement that he knew who the murderers were. At the same time, the police tracked down a man named Doc Woods, a labourer who works on a cotton farm on the outskirts of the city. At some point in the past, Woods had taken a fancy to Gracie and propositioned her, though she had turned his advances down. According to Hennessy, in the run-up to the murder, a man named Jonathan Trigg had overheard him talking with Oliver Woods in the Black Elephant, where the pair were said to have been planning an attack on Gracie Vance. Trigg said that he followed the pair after they left the saloon in order to see if they would carry out their plan. The pair walked a short ways before splitting up and then meeting again in the vicinity of the Dunham house, at which point Trigg ran away. Hennessy told the press he had visited the hospital in order to question Lucinda Body, who had confirmed it was Woods that she had seen at the window. It all looked like game set and match for the killers. Finally, a real breakthrough. The police found Woods working on the cotton farm as usual, and though he insisted to them that he'd been there all night, as attested to by the farm's owner, who had personally seen him at the end of his shift at 10pm and at the start of the next day at 4am, still, they arrested him anyway, pointing to a small patch of blood on the hem of his shirt as further evidence. Townsend was also arrested and the pair were put in prison under heavy guard through fear of the townsfolk rising up looking for their own justice. Whilst all this was going on, a man named John Robinson had visited the police station. That same morning, his own servants' quarters had been broken into and ransacked. 
Unfortunately, his servant, a Swedish teenage girl, had been sleeping in the main house since the attacks became a regular occurrence, and as such, was not there at the time. Upon inspection of the shack, she confirmed that the only thing missing had been a silver watch on a chain with their family name etched into the rear of the fob. Even more strangely, it appeared to match exactly with the one taken from the body of Gracie Vance that same morning. Just as the case seemed to be heading in the right direction, the press decided to instigate their own investigation. Something about the testimony that Hennessy waved about in front of the reporters seemed a little off, and so one of them visited the hospital himself to speak to Lucinda. Once there, however, he found a woman completely incapable of uttering a word, let alone an entire statement. In his report, he went so far as to describe the head wound, which included brain matter leaking from the skull. Furthermore, physicians in the prison had examined Woods and found the blood on his shirt to have come from a wound from a saw, not from any attack victim. As the story slowly began to unravel, another group of reporters uncovered the fact that Trigg had been working in Hennessy's hotel as a waiter, opening up the very real possibility that the detectives had either coerced or even potentially bribed him into signing a statement that was more or less a work of complete fiction. Just as the public's confidence for the detectives began to run dry, Himmel, one of Hennessy's assistants, was removed forcibly from a saloon after getting drunk and firing his pistol into the ceiling. By the middle of October, the council voted to end the detectives' contract and they were sent packing, leaving the investigation back at square one. Mayor Robertson instead turned to a new strategy, offering a $250 reward for information that would lead to an arrest of anyone carrying out murder, rape, arson or burglary in the nighttime in Austin. This plan led to an inevitable flurry of tips, mostly focusing on various black residents, including one 14-year-old, all of which were promptly arrested, questioned and then released. The public, on the other hand, came up with their own solution and the sales of guns and ammunition rose sharply, while servants began an exodus from the city with those that could afford to, heading out to new pastures to seek work. People were leaving at such a rate, in fact, that a shortage of servant labour threatened a new crisis for the floundering mayor. On November the 10th, Mayor Robertson sat in on the council to give his annual State of the City address. Launching into an exhaustive list of the city's finances, highlighting that when he took office, the treasury was empty and the city mired in debt, He celebrated the fact that under his supervision, he had turned the situation around, with the city now in a healthy financial position and with a positive bank balance. It was not really the pressing concern, however, as the mayor knew all too well. Voters were still lacking servants and buying up guns at an alarming rate, and the fear of the servant-go attacks was continuing unabated, despite the recent lull in events. Rounding on the subject, Mayor Robertson addressed the issue head-on. The crimes remain a mystery. They are abnormal and unnatural as compared with ordinary crimes among men. No one, not even the experts skilled in detection of crime, can find a plausible motive. The mutilated bodies of the victims are always found in parts of the city where crime is not expected or anticipated, and beyond the fact of the murders, we have never been able to penetrate. I have faith to believe that the authors of these crimes will yet be discovered. No human is strong enough to hold such a secret. Some guilty conscience will unburden itself sooner or later. 
It was not exactly a speech to steal the confidence of the public. Meanwhile, reporters began floating the idea that the attacks were not simply gang violence or the working of a raving lunatic, but were, perhaps, the work of a single man, cold and calculated in their planning and carried out expressly with intent for the attacker to carry out his sick desires before slinking off into the darkness. One reporter even coined a name for the man, calling him the Midnight Assassin. The mayor, meanwhile, was watching with one eye on an investigation into the conduct of detectives and Marshal Lee in extorting evidence from several suspects in the murders. It made for a grim outlook, and Robertson was made acutely aware that his popularity would have to rise if he intended to win re-election in a forthcoming polls. Over the following days and weeks, a case was made against Walter Spencer, husband of the first victim, Molly Smith, who was still recovering from the head wounds that he had suffered in the attack. Despite this fact, Spencer was arrested and put up for trial on suspicion of murder, the lead prosecutor being the district attorney, James Robertson, the younger brother of the mayor. With the mayoral elections due to take place two weeks later, to call the trial a stroke of good fortune for the mayor was an understatement, and a cynical person might even suggest that things were not quite above board. Whether or not it helped the mayor is anyone's guess, but Robertson gained re-election, winning by 53 votes on December the 8th, and a week later, the trial against Spencer was underway. At the trial, the prosecution focused on a story that Spencer had caught Molly sleeping with another man, killed her in a crime of passion, and then hit himself in the head with an axe in order to look innocent. In a remarkable performance, they presented absolutely no evidence to the court and called no witnesses. A court-appointed lawyer worked in defence of Spencer, who called numerous witnesses, attesting to the peaceful and loving relationship between Spencer and Molly, as well as a physician who gave evidence attesting that it would have been impossible for Spencer to have hit himself in his own head with enough force to cause the severity of injuries that he had been left with. The trial concluded shortly after. Unfortunately, Spencer was acquitted of all guilt. A week after the trial, Marshall Lee was impeached and placed with Captain James Lucy, another former Texas Ranger. With Christmas just a few days away, the mood in Austin was getting back into one of festive celebration. The new marshal patrolled the streets on horseback nightly with Chenneville, watching as people got on with their lives. Lucy would not have to wait long, however, before he would be dragged into action as the midnight assassin made plans to strike once more. Christmas Eve in Austin saw busy streets, with shoppers grabbing last-minute gifts for their loved ones. Carl Meyer's jewellery store sold fine diamond earrings, whilst Pet Mechies sold shotguns using the sales pitch, Papa, your boy wants a shotgun. Pet Mechie has some nice ones cheap. Across the street, a florist sold bouquets of roses for a dollar. In the insane asylum, a Christmas tree was decorated with Japanese lanterns and a visit from St. Nick, or rather, a local by the name of Mr. Poindexter in red and white garb, saw gifts handed out to inmates and staff alike. At the end of the day's festivities, everything was wrapped up with a fireworks display. In saloons across town, people began to amble home lazily, and by midnight, few were left on the street, save for Marshal Lucy and Sergeant Chenneville, who maintained their patrols ever vigilant, despite the freezing temperatures. As midnight passed, and the lamps in the street began to be extinguished, a horse rode into Congress Avenue, 
its hooves thumping into the dirt ground at a clip that was alarming to the officers, who turned to see Alexander Wilkie, a night watchman in one of the local saloons, waving his arms and yelling at the top of his lungs. A woman has been chopped all to pieces down on East Water Street. Born in Alabama in 1842, Suzanne Hancock was the 43-year-old wife of Moses Hancock, a carpenter in Austin and mother to two daughters, Lena, 15, and Ida, 11. They had purchased a house on Water Street in South Austin earlier that year after moving to the city in the hopes of finding carpentry work due to the booming population. Earlier that Christmas Eve, Susan had gone shopping in downtown Austin, returning in the evening to prepare her daughters for a Christmas party. She spent the night at home with Moses, and Ida and Lena returned home just after 11pm. Shortly before midnight, Moses had woken sharply, hearing a scuffle from his wife's bedroom. Jumping up and storming into the room, he arrived just in time to see the bedding tossed out onto the floor, a bloody smear across the open windowsill, a bloody axe cast to the ground beside, and his wife laying out in the yard. As he stepped out into the yard himself, he noticed a shadowy figure scaling the rear fence, but a moment later he had disappeared. With his attention turning back to his wife, he called to his neighbour, Harvey Persinger, and the two carried her to the parlour room, and then he went looking for help. Finding Alexander Wilkie, he told the man of the news and sent him to find the police and then returned home to take care of Susan, who had clearly been suffering. By the time that the police arrived, she was all but expired. Her two doctors, Bert and Graves, doing all they could to stem the bleeding from her head, which had been fractured in two places. Like victims previously, she had also had both ears pierced by a thin rod and blood dripped from both. Officers attempted to extract the evening's events from Moses, but he was distraught and unable to be of much help, aside from pointing the bloodhounds in the direction of the rear fence. As they took notes, another shrill cry erupted through the yard, this time from Henry Brown, who had rode towards the group on horseback. As he pulled up, he blurted out to the group, It's Eula Phillips. Her head's been chopped in two. Eula Phillips was the 17-year-old wife of a prominent architect in Austin, Jimmy Phillips. Her family had been early settlers in Travis County and she'd grown up on a farm near Walnut Creek. Her mother and father had been undergoing a divorce when her mother passed away from typhoid in 1882. A year later, the family had relocated to Austin and Eula had married Jimmy the couple moving into the rear quarters of his parents' home. Shortly after, Eula gave birth to a son named Thomas. As police pulled into the yard of the Phillips' house, they immediately saw the ten-month-old baby Tom, who was covered in blood and had a small gash on his ear, but was otherwise unharmed and unperplexed by the gory situation that he found himself in. An axe lay at the foot of his crib, stained with blood, and a smeared trail led out onto the veranda and into the yard. The police followed it to the northern fence where they found Eula laying in a pool of blood, her nightgown pulled up around her neck and her arms laying outstretched. Her forehead had been split wide open and on top of her body three pieces of fire would have been placed, two on her chest and one on her stomach. Jimmy himself was being seen to by doctors for an axe wound to his own head, though they were currently unsure if his skull had been fractured or not. Whatever the damage, He could do little more than groan when the police asked him for his recollections. Outside of the axe, the only piece of evidence that the police found was a bloody footprint on the floor outside of Eula's bedroom, 
which they ordered to be cut out and sent to the police station. Once more, the bloodhounds were released. They had found their way to the Phillips after quickly losing the trail from the Hancocks, but all they did here was run around in circles, slobbering at Jimmy's feet. The murders of Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips were different. Not only did they seem somehow more ritualistic, with the wood placed on the body, but the victims were, for the first time, white and middle class. Unsurprisingly, this sent a new wave of fear through the citizenry of Austin, who had, until now, not been entirely upset by the murders of lower-class black servants. All of a sudden, the lack of action by the authorities was under real scrutiny, and people expected a change intact and fast. That night, the population poured out into the streets in order to huddle together in scared circles, gossiping on the rumours flooding through the crowds. One reporter claimed that at one point in the early morning hours, the entire population was turned out, all carrying gas lamps as stores turned on all of their lights in order to brighten the shadowy blocks. Angry mobs walked to Congress Avenue to await official announcements or yell at the city council, whilst others, too afraid to leave their houses, barricaded themselves indoors, waiting for the sunrise. Mercifully, the sky did crack at 7.30am without any more attacks, much to the relief of the terrified population who now read papers on street corners, hastily reprinted overnight to include the headline, Blood, Blood, Blood. The demons have transferred their thirst for blood to white people. Aware that he had to do something, Mayor Robertson passed an ordinance for the police to hire 20 new officers, partially to abate the baying hordes who were calling for blood. Saloons were ordered to close between midnight and 5am and Robertson contacted the infamous Pinkerton Detective Agency in Chicago, asking for their assistance immediately. By 5pm that afternoon, Marshal Lucine had signed in over a dozen new police officers. Whilst it wasn't a curfew as such, anyone found out and about at night and unable to give a convincing reason as to why they should be so, their arrest was authorised. It was a stark difference to the feet dragging that had been happening until now and was more than a little off, given that the only thing to have changed was the colour of the victim's skin. Meanwhile, the Midnight Assassin's antics had gone national. Press from around the country reported on the Christmas Eve murders and sales for guns and ammo that had already been rising launched into an entirely new realm as husbands bought guns for their wives, teaching them how to shoot in their yards. That night, more than a few delivery men were shot at by the jumpy public, who luckily could not aim for toffee. On the 29th of December, just as Susan Hancock passed away from her injuries sustained during the Christmas Eve attack, the Pinkertons arrived in Austin. Hired for 90 days for the sum total of $3,000, they went to meet the mayor, who was thrilled to welcome them to the city, proud to have disciples of the infamous William and Adam Pinkerton in his office. The problem for the mayor was, however, that these Pinkertons did not work for William and Alan, but rather for Matt Pinkerton. Little did the mayor know that there were two Pinkerton detective agencies in Chicago, the famous Pinkerton's National Detective Agency and the far less notorious Pinkerton & Co, a pale imposter that was operating solely on the associations that came with the famous name of its founder. Matt Pinkerton had in fact worked for the more famous agency briefly in 1882, but he had been fired for incompetence shortly after joining. Feeling enterprising, he went into business himself, capitalising on his surname, hoping to sweep up a few cases here and there from unfortunates, 
just like Mayor Robertson. The Midnight Assassin case was actually their first murder case that they had ever signed a contract for. Robertson was in a difficult position. If he admitted fault for the situation, he would be ridiculed. It would have been political suicide. Instead, he decided to keep quiet and let the public believe what they would. Until now, they'd been expecting the Pinkertons, and that was exactly what they would be getting, in a way. He introduced the two detectives to Lucy and Chenneville and held his breath, whilst also signing off on three separate rewards put together by the Citizens Committee of Safety of $1,000 to anyone that could provide evidence leading to an arrest, $1,000 each for the murder of Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips, and $1,000 for all the crimes against the black population. The following days saw a slew of arrests, all from the black community and one Mexican named Martinez who had been found to have been hoarding women's dresses. After questioning and having them all stamp their feet in ink to have prints of their feet taken and compared to the print removed from the Phillips home however, they were all once more released. The new year passed by quietly and in a somber mood as people decided to stay in their homes rather than take to the streets to enjoy the usual celebrations. As the story had little progression in terms of actual leads, the void was filled by idle speculation, including the theory that all of the previous attacks had been carried out under the light of the moon. This led the papers to suggest that there was possibly something in this. The moon will soon be full again and then will wane, the police concluded. Will it be on a scene of blood and cruel and ghastly death? In the 19th century, the concept that a full moon brought about an inescapable madness amongst ordinary people, driving them to do terrifying deeds, was still one that filled the pages of popular fiction. But the full moon did come, and no new murders took place. In fact, very little took place at all. Not until a man named Thomas Bales, the owner of a detective agency, went to City Hall with information on Eula Phillips that he hoped might stake his claim in the reward. Despite appearances, Eula and Jimmy's relationship had not always been quite as sunshine and roses as it was made to look from the outside. As early as January of 1885, Jimmy and Eula had moved to a farm in Williamson County, owned by George McCutcheon, a friend of Jimmy's father. Jimmy had been drinking heavily, and George offered the troubled son of his friend a steady job. It was, however, to be a poor move all round. George's wife died in March, and shortly after, Eula became pregnant from George, who arranged for the teenage wife to have an abortion. In October, the couple returned to Austin and Jimmy returned to drinking, at times becoming abusive and Eula took to sleeping in the parlour. What came next was even more of a shocker. Bales believed that he had evidence that since their return to Austin, Eula had been visiting a boarding house owned by May Tobin in the downtown area in order to carry out a series of affairs with several prominent Austin men. May Tobin was called to the police station and offered immunity from arrest for running a house of assignation in return for evidence that what Thomas Bales was saying was true. May obliged and told police that on Christmas Eve, an hour before her murder, she had arrived at the house with her head wrapped in a scarf, hoping to rent a room. On that occasion, May had no rooms to spare and so the girl had been turned away but Bales believed that when she had returned home, Jimmy had caught wind of the affairs and in a drunken, jealous fit of rage, killed his wife and hit himself to cover his tracks. It seemed far-fetched at first, 
but then the police recalled that the bloodhounds had taken quite a shine to Jimmy on the night of the attack when they attempted to have the dogs find a trail. An arrest warrant was issued, which was easy to carry out, as Jimmy was still in no state to be moving about and was recovering in bed. A guard was placed in his room and room was quickly exploded through the streets. Jimmy's parents gave an interview to the press denying everything and calling the arrest of their son a grievous outrage, but their voices were covered by the chatter of people trying to guess who the girls' lovers could have been. And the scandal didn't end there. A couple of weeks later, Bales was back in the police headquarters, this time with a story that framed Moses Hancock for killing his wife. He too had been a drinker, and a letter had been found in Susan's bedroom that suggested that she had planned to leave her husband and move to Waco. I have loved you and followed you day and night, but you won't quit whiskey, and I am so nervous I can't stand it. Write me at Waco, and I will answer every letter. Once again, Bales proposed a theory to the police that Moses had read the letter and in another fit of drunken rage killed his wife just like Jimmy. Moses was arrested despite claiming to have never seen the letter before in his life and was thrown into county jail to await trial. In truth, despite Susan having written the letter, she had never given it to her husband and had never carried out her plan to leave. But since her death, Moses had been drinking heavily and was prone to violent shouting outbursts accusing people randomly of killing his wife, which did nothing to help disprove Bale's theory in the eyes of those around him. As January drew to a close, an attack in San Antonio, a hundred miles south of Austin, rocked the press. For Mayor Robertson, he was likely just glad it was someone else seeing the rough end for once, but the press were quick to link it to Austin. Patty Scott, a 28-year-old servant girl, had been murdered in her quarters while sleeping. Austin, however, remained quiet throughout the rest of the month and the first half of February, and then, just as the trial of Jimmy Phillips approached, Robertson's fake Pinkertons entered the fray with a new suspect. During their own investigation, which consisted of mainly questioning locals that had already been interrogated by the police, they had received a telegram with a tip-off that Euler had been meeting with a prominent politician named William J. Swain, the state comptroller. When the news broke, Swain denied the story outright, calling it out as slander. If what the telegram said was true, it was a fantastic scandal. But, of course, the fake Pinkertons had jumped the gun, and they'd failed to dig into exactly who had sent the telegram, which turned out to be from the Democrat candidate running against him in the upcoming election for governor. Robertson quickly paid off the detectives, sending them packing back to Chicago before they caused any more mess. But by that point, his days were beginning to look increasingly numbered. Jimmy's pre-trial took place, and Jimmy somehow managed to attend, despite the fact that the doctors said he was still suffering from the attack. His trial date was set for May, and thankfully, between pre-trial and trial, things in Austin quietened down considerably. When he entered the courtroom on the first day of trial, May the 24th, the press described him as looking pale and feeble, as the prosecution brought in numerous witnesses that attested to the idea that Euler and Jimmy's relationship had been something of a nightmare. Jimmy had been a violent drunk, they said, and Euler an untrue wife. Then, May Tobin took the stand, and though she had been somewhat vague in her earlier testimony, she used the spotlight of the courtroom to really drop bombs. Now she appeared to know all the names of Euler's lovers. In a heavy voice, she reeled them off to the crowd, 
John T. Dickinson, the Secretary of State Commission and the man overseeing the construction of the new Capitol building project, Benjamin M. Baker, the head of Texas schools, and William D. Shelley, a clerk from the governor's office. There were also two other men, she said, though these men's names she did not know. Nor did it truly matter. By this point, the damage had been done. In retaliation, the defence focused on the unreliability of Chenneville's hounds, whilst they called physicians to explain that Jimmy just couldn't possibly have hit himself hard enough in order to injure himself as severely as he had. They then had Jimmy step in a bucket of ink in front of the whole courtroom and make a print, clear for all to see, so that they could show how it did not match with the print taken from outside Eula's room. When the prosecution claimed it was not to be accurate, as Jimmy would have been carrying Eula at that point and therefore much heavier, William Walton, a defence attorney, climbed on his back and made him repeat the process. Once more, the footprint showed no match. After three days, the jury went out to consider their verdict. After a day and a half of intense debate, they returned a verdict of guilty of uxoricide, the crime of killing one's spouse, and Jimmy was sentenced to seven years in the state penitentiary. Following the trial, the press could barely contain their contempt for the verdict, saying that it had not been met with universal commendation and called into question the fact that the trial had only worked to detach the Phillips murder from a long line of attacks and murders that had been haunting Austin for a prolonged period. If Jimmy truly was guilty, then what of all the others? Were they all simply attacks of passion carried out by jealous husbands and lovers? If not, they suggested, then the town really did have problems for the murderer remained wrapped in a mystery. As for Jimmy, he immediately filed for a retrial, which he won in November of 1886, scheduled for the following year. But as the months ticked by and the new year came and went, his case was eventually dissolved in March of 1887 and the trial officially dropped. Moses still had his trial, however, which was scheduled to take place in June. The defence attorney for Jimmy represented Moses too, pro bono, such was his anger at the prosecution. After two days of deliberation, the jury were unable to reach a verdict and the entire thing was ended in mistrial. That summer saw too the end of Mayor Robertson after Eula's parents wrote to the Pinkerton Detective Agency, the real one this time, in order to confirm a series of facts concerning the investigation into their daughter's murder. When they received a reply stating that the agency had never been hired to look into the case in the first place, his only option was to step down from the election race. In July, he was replaced with Joseph Now, whose first plan of action was to sign off on the erection of 25 electrical towers that would stand 30 feet tall, lighting the streets of Austin throughout the night. The moonlight towers would, he was sure, put an end to all manner of nighttime crime in the city, though it would take a further 10 years before they would finally be constructed and switched on. As time passed with no new attacks manifesting, people were, by and large, just happy to move on with their lives, especially the authorities. Moses was never retried and his case lay discarded and unpursued. In 1888, there were some rumblings that attempted to connect the attacker with the Whitechapel killing of Jack the Ripper, but it was tenuous at best and more a case of good copy than hard facts. Eventually, as the years began ticking over, the axe murders became more and more akin to urban legend rather than recent history, until eventually that was all they were. The axe man becoming nothing more than a story to tell round campfires. 
the true midnight assassin, having made his final getaway, disappearing into the night, never to be seen again. So that was the story of the Midnight Assassin. Quite a long one and an awful, awful lot to unpack, I'm, I'm sure. So we'll get to that after this short bit of capitalism. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, and that's dark histories all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, 3 and $5 per month. And for that, 
You gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. Thanks very much for listening. Quite a difficult story to tell, as you can imagine, but an intriguing mystery nonetheless, I think. I, I do recommend, um, I read two books for this, um, but the one that I'm going to recommend it was is by a guy called Skip Hollandsworth, who I think is quite famous for, for writing books about the South, like true crime books throughout the Southern States. Um, although I, I don't know, I've not read any more of his other work, but this one is called The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really um, a good book to read as a primer. Um, and it, it has an awful lot of information. I, I tend to sort of like hammer through as fast as I can because I've got, you know, other stuff to get onto, like digging through papers and census records and all things like that. So when I read those books, it's more just to get a kind of general feel for it and to make sure that it will be a, a, a story that I want to get, you know, sort of cover. Um, but I really did enjoy that. So I did sort of skim read it largely, but I, I did enjoy it and, and I recommend it. It, got, it sort of goes a bit off the deep end at the end about the whole Jack the Ripper thing. I sort of skimmed that in this episode because for me, I, I don't think it's anything to do with it. I think, you know, the MOs are completely different. It's just absolutely nothing. It's I mean, it's just madness. It, I just, I'm not going to entertain that theory whatsoever, basically. But, you know, that said, who was it then? Um, I thought that was a really interesting thing. I, I thought it was interesting how at first the theory was that it was a gang. And then it, it slowly morphed over time to being a gang to a potentially a, a, a sort of crazed madman. And then it, it's very slowly started to like morph from the crazed madman into perhaps not quite so crazed madman. The idea that it might actually be a, a serial killer who was sort of cold and calculated and perhaps living amongst the regular population during the day and, and killing by night. It was really interesting reading in the newspapers like how much of a fresh idea this was and just how um, sort of unwilling people were to sort of broach that idea as well, which I suppose in a way you can understand because outside of it just being a, a, a new idea or a newer idea at the time, it's also quite a scary idea, isn't it? That, you know, actually this, this could be someone normal. It's, it's definitely like uh, got an insidious touch to it that, puts it into a, a whole different level so it, I, th I found that really interesting the way it slowly morphed from like say like this gang to this potentially one person i personally don't think that it was one person i think that probably it started off as a bunch of copycat attacks i think probably there was one guy throughout all of the attacks but i think the, the initial attacks were far too frequent to have been one guy i think they were potentially sort of i don't know a handful of people 
that were sort of copying the the main guy, if you like, um, because to me there just seemed a lot of variation in the attacks. I mean, there was a lot of the attacks that got bundled in were just people throwing rocks at houses. I'm not really sure if that wouldn't have just been people sort of trying to scare people, like maybe like hoaxing them or pranking them or whatever, especially if, you know, people were scared at the time. So so I, I sort of get the impression that at first it was maybe a, a group of people not working in con- like together, but just sort of copycatting and things like that. But I do think there was probably one guy who who, who went throughout the whole lot. And you can sort of see how the murders follow that kind of serial killer trajectory of getting more and more violent and more and more sort of refined in their MO as well. So I do think that it was probably like one guy throughout. But I don't think all the attacks were by the set like that same one guy. I think there were probably other attacks at the same time. So and that's just because when you read the papers, it got to the point where it was daily and every day. I mean, I wrote of most of the sort of bigger attacks, but it, it got to the, even the papers weren't reporting every single attack because they would report one attack or two attacks. And then the next day they would report several more attacks and they would comment on how the day before there'd been more than just the attacks that they'd already commented on. So there, there were like multiple attacks nightly. And I just don't think one man could have done that or would have done that. It would have been a, a lot of mental exertion to, to have done that for one man, I think. There were a lot of suspects that got ruled out for not owning a horse um, because you would have needed a horse to have done all the attacks if you were one man, they reckoned. So, like I say, it was quite a lot of ground to cover anyway. But outside of that, I think just the mental exertion of doing all those attacks, like that you would have been like really wired up constantly day and night for, for and it, so it just makes me think that it was more than one person. Otherwise, I, I, I'm at a loss, um, but but an interesting story nonetheless. Um, say, uh, quite a difficult story to cover, but uh, if uh, you've got any theories on the story, let me know. You can contact me contact at darkhistories.com or you can go to the website which is darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can get in touch with me there like via social media and all the rest of it the links are also all in the show notes as always but otherwise that 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 pretty much wraps up this week's episode so earlier on i mentioned the patron prize draw thingy that i'm going to be doing that starts from next month so well june so if you listen to this in june basically What's going to happen is if you're a patron member, any level, you can be on any tier. As long as you are a member for patron that month, you will go into um, a, a random draw. I'll use like a random number generator, pull, pull one out and um, you get the chance to win a T-shirt, which, you know, means if you're, if you're lucky, you can win a T-shirt for a dollar essentially um so yeah if if you want to get involved with that you can sign up to the patreon all the details again are um in the show notes or on the website um and if you're already a patron then you'll just be automatically put in um i'll read the winner's name at the end of june um and at the end of every month going forward um on on that episode but i'll also contact you on patreon as well 
just in case you, you sort of miss it or don't listen to it or whatever. So, so I will be contacting you on Patreon as well. Um, yeah, thanks very much for listening. That's that. I will be back in a couple of weeks. So until then, take care and I'll see you real soon. Sleep tight.